Hey everybody, welcome back to the Adventures in Machine Learning podcast. Today we have a very special guest who's a very prolific writer in a bunch of different journals, does a lot of blog posting on Medium and uh, also some great posts on Katie Nuggets. She's a, an evangelist for the company Nime, a data, data science and ML tooling platform. So our guest, Marit Widman, is going to be talking through with Michael and I about what it is that she does. We'll talk through one of her most most interesting recent posts about how to interpret classification models and and how to how to do generate visualization and read them. So yeah, let's uh, let's get started. Thank you very much for the introduction. And as Ben said, I'm Marit Wittmann. And I'm very happy to be here and tell you about visual scoring metrics, about the work with I and my colleagues do at NIME. So I work as a data scientist at NIME. I'm streaming today from Constance, from southern Germany. And here we create blog posts, we create courses, webinars, many types of educational contents around the software, open source software at NIME, analytics platform, and then also data science contents. So you will find them in, in the journals Ben just said. And yeah, I'm happy to tell you more. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Yeah. And one of the things that caught the attention of people at, at the podcast was a blog post that you made entitled Visual Scoring Techniques for Classification Models. And this is one of those topics that I think most seen, like seasoned data scientists, people that have been doing it for a while, we take it for granted when we look at charts of like the visualizations that come out of these, these evaluation uh, sort of metric tooling where we can plot an ROC curve, we can look at the area under ROC values, and we just can look at a confusion matrix and understand very quickly what all of these numbers mean and what the ratios mean as they pertain to a particular use case. But for people getting started in data science and ML, and some of this stuff is pretty complicated to grok really quick. So if you could just run through at a very high level what you were writing about in this post and how important this topic is if you're doing classification modeling in particular. Yeah, so I think what you say about this, that people use it, then the visual graphs are always nice to use. They are e easier to show somewhere than plain numbers. And that's also the benefit of these techniques because then you can just by one, one look say, is this model performing better than the previous one comparing these two models, which one is the best one? 
So it's, it makes them also very easy to access the scoring techniques. But of course, what does it tell about your model, model's performance? That's, that's also the question that I'm trying to answer in the blog post. And the first question is to say or justify why do we need these visual techniques other than that it's nicer to use and maybe easier to interpret. And we in the blog post, I go through three different visual techniques. One is the ROC curve, one is the lift chart, and one is the cumulative gain chart. And all of these visualizations, they answer or they show a bit different things about the model's performance, but they all have in common that they compare the performance to a random classifier. So just by making like a lottery and say, this is the class that I assigned to this, this guy or this, this event and doing that just by randomly. So is our model performing at all? Is it even worth training it, using it? And the other thing that they show is, okay, we have some kind of a model. The model generates predictions, but can we change something in the way that it generates the predictions? So can we uh, change the classification threshold? That is what uh, we see in the ROC curve or what we see in the cumulative gain chart and lift chart. Can we use the model when we want to sample less data than all that we have to reach the interesting class. And these things, what I just mentioned, you don't see in the plain statistics. And this already gives you more information, the views compared to the single numbers. And maybe if I, shall I very quickly say what, what you see in each of these charts. So the ROC curve shows how the model is performing if you change the classification threshold. So the classification threshold is the probability of being assigned to one class or the other. And it is by default 0.5. The class assignment is based on the greatest probability. But you can, of course, change it. You can make the model more sensitive to assigning to one class. For example, if you do disease detection, it might be that it's not so easy to detect those that are the disease carriers, but you want to have have these predictions to those that show a little tendency, little probability to the uh, disease. And then you might lower the classification threshold. So if we're, talking about a, yeah. if we're talking about a use case where, like mm. what you said, the disease probability, you say, hey, even if I have like a 10% chance that in the probability exactly. that this is actually going wrong, I want to know. So my my doctor is informed to say, okay, I need to do these additional 37 tests over the next two weeks to really rule out because the model is saying that there's there's a possibility. But if we use the defaults and when we're looking at an ROC curve or a lift curve, we always see in the visualization this line that extends from X equals zero, Y equals zero to X equals max, Y equals max on that plot at one, one coordinate. And that's the 50%. That's the, the coin flip threshold that people see. And that's the default on classifiers. So yeah, there's plenty of use cases out there where you can say, even if there's a slim chance, I really want to know. So you can get a positive classification assignment of saying yes, positive, true, even though the probability is 11.2%. Correct. And this is this is the one side. The other side might be that, okay, what if I lower the threshold too much? For example, in credit card fraud detection. This means I will get frequently the request to contact or contact a credit card holder and say, was this payment by you? And this can be also annoying. So you need to find the right right threshold for your use case. And this is also what you see in the ROC curve. So you, if you remember how it looks like, 
it has two axes and the x-axis and y-axis, they show the model performance exactly from these two perspectives. So not classifying too many wrong cases into the interesting class, and but still finding as many as possible of the people in the class of interest, which could be the fraud or it could be the disease. Mm-hmm. Shall I give a quick intro of the other other yeah. uh, techniques as well? Yeah. Let's do the lift curve. Yeah. So the lift curve is, this curve is telling you how how many cases from the interesting class you get in subsamples. So for example, in a sample of 10% of all data, if you sample it based on the predicted class probabilities versus if you take a random sample of the same size. And this can give you information, for example, if you want to reach 10 customers who churn. You have a churn prediction model and you, are want, you, have a, you want to provide a discount so that the people don't leave the company. And if you have the probability in a random sample to reach a customer who churns and the probability is 10%, this means you need to sample contact and provide the discount to 100 people to reach the 10. But it could be that it's enough to sample 15 people using the model predictions and give the discount to these 15 people. And by the model predictions, 10 in this sample will be those who actually churn. So the list chart shows you how much you can save the resources just by sample, sampling the right people. And the cumulative gain chart is similar, just that it shows which proportion of the target uh, or the interesting class also or target class it can be the positive class many many names for the for the same thing which proportion you need to sample of all data to reach which proportion of the interesting class so if you say i want to reach 50% of all customers who churn or all fraud transactions or your target class then it shows you okay you need to sample for example 80% of all data and the cumulative gain chart can also show, okay, which which sample size you need to use to have the best ratio of matching classes. So where you optim, where is the effort optimal in reaching, in contacting people or sampling people or whatever you are classifying, versus reaching the interesting class. Yeah, and this segues very nicely into giving people the ability to understand what happens when we're looking at, at some of these these use cases that you're using as examples of churn prediction, provided that you're not running a business that is offending people, offending your customers, and that you have a churn rate, a baseline churn rate of 50%. Most companies that are interacting with customers, hopefully your churn rate isn't a single digit over a fixed period of time. And how does this, how do these approaches change when we go from a business model where we're dealing with, say, entertainment? Entertainment might have eight, nine percent churn month over month. They'll probably gaining more customers than that over that same month period. So they're still profitable and growing. But when we talk about critical services and a company that might be providing utility support. And there's only two decisions that can be made about what power company do you want to go with. Most people lock into those for a really long period of time, for as long as they usually live in their house, unless they do something, unless they get really upset with their the company that they're they're uh, paying money to. So when you're talking about churn in a ratio where you might have one e to the negative five 
churn rate over a month, we start looking at these plots and and looking at the numbers, just the raw statistics. We say, hey, give me the F1 score or the accuracy of my binary classifier for churn, not churn. How can we get misguided or how can it be misleading looking at those numbers? This is a very, very good example and not uh, so I would say more more often than not, the classes are unbalanced in this was a very extreme example with 0.00 something in one class and in the other, the majority. But this is something that is, is a common mistake in interpreting the statistics or the model's performance. So let's take this example where we have, for example, 1% churn and 99% no churn. And now we take, again, the random classifier answer state. Let's use the probability in the data and assign the classes. With such a model, we have maybe 100 customers. Just by a random classification, 99% will be predicted not to leave the company, not churn, and one whoever will be predicted to leave the uh, company. Mm-hmm. Okay, we get the correct predictions for all the others, but, but the one customer who actually left. We get an overall accuracy, 99%, and it mm-hmm. looks good, but it's telling nothing about the model's actual performance because it's not detecting, for sure, it's not detecting the one customer who who actually left. So the overall accuracy is, is statistics that is good in reporting the overall, overall performance of the model for both classes, but it's very dangerous in this case of extreme class uh, imbalance. And what you do then? In numbers, you can report the class statistics. So these report the performance from the point of view of predictions into one class. So there we have statistics called sensitivity and this is also what you see in ROC curve on the uh, y-axis. And here you see, okay, how which proportion of the positive class of the interesting class was predicted correctly. And in the example that I just said, here it would be zero. And we mm-hmm. already see, okay, the model is useful, uh, useless for this, for this predicting the minority class. So that's already one one reason to take a look at the visual scoring metrics to see the class or especially the ROC curve, to see the class performance for both both uh, classes. So you bring up a very interesting idea here, which in practice, I've, I've not seen a lot of people figure that out. Of clients that I've interacted with or you know, junior data scientists that I've worked with in, in the past, where they use the defaults for a visualization package, they, they, like sklearn, they, they throw their, their binary classifier against that or... And, the multi-classifier, and they generate their you know, error loss metrics coming off of that and saying, here's our, my accuracy, and oh, I, I generated an RC plot on this without realizing that, hey, you didn't generate one for each of them, and you didn't actually see what the perform, like visually see what the performance was in for whether they have a massive class imbalance or not. But when you go into multi-class problems where you could have 10 different classes that you're trying to predict, the probability in reality that you're going to have pretty good class balance between those 10 is almost infinitesimally slow uh, for most real-world problems. So, yeah, it's, it's really, it's sort of refreshing to hear somebody say, hey, make sure you generate one of these for each of your classes so that you can actually see what that looks like. And it makes a lot of, a lot of charts uh, for people to look at, but you also talk about in the blog post another way of, of generating a visualization that I'd say most listeners to this show are going to be familiar with, which is a confusion matrix. And 
we want to talk a little bit about how that's built and why it's a thing, like what the different quadrants are and for a binary classifier at least. Yeah. So the the idea of evaluating a classification model is to compare the predicted and actual classes. So let's say we have again the churn and no churn. So we have two two kinds of events, two kinds of classes in the actual data, those who churned and those who didn't churn. And the same for prediction. We have those who were predicted to churn and those who were predicted to not churn. And the confusion matrix for this kind of a binomial classification model is a two by two matrix. And here we have as rows, those in the actual classes. And as column headers, we have the predicted classes. And then the cell values in the matrix are the where the counts of combinations of these, these, two cla- uh, these two events. So if we have somebody who churns and was predicted to churn, this count as the successes of the models, and we call them true positives. And then we have those who didn't churn and also were pre- predicted not to churn. These are called the true negatives. And then we have those where these are exactly the opposite. And these are then the false positives or false negatives. So those incorrect predictions. And this confusion matrix is the first look of your model's performance. So you see how many observations had the correct predictions. And you also use these numbers, these four numbers in the confusion matrix to to calculate the class statistics or to calculate the overall accuracy statistics or or calculate the metrics that you show in the uh, visual plots as well. So it's maybe not so easy to compare models, but it's easy to go back if you see, okay, my overall accuracy is good, but sensitivity is not good. Okay, what is happening? Let's take a look at the confusion matrix. And we can read these confusion matrices and these values that you're talking about, your true positive rate, your false positive rate, true negative and false negative. And one thing that we were talking about before the show started recording was how important certain use cases are to what you should be paying attention to. And in the early part of what we were discussing with with medical stuff, like, hey, we're predicting that you have some sort of curable, but we want to intervene very early disease. And we might be okay with a high false positive rate, better safe than sorry, but what we don't want on one of those models is a false negative rate. That's bad. That could kill somebody. So we can tune the model and adjust whether it's the hyperparameters or adjust our feature engineering set, change how we actually train that model, or even try a different model architecture that could be more sensitive to the features that are dictating how it's it's getting false negatives and minimizing that as much as possible. But then there's other use cases where you really don't want a false negative because it, it irritates your customers. You brought up the, the hey, we think this is fraud. Uh, we're locking your credit card or we're locking your bank account. And it wasn't. It was just, oh, I, I took a, an afternoon trip on a Saturday to the next city over, and yeah, I'm I'm buying an, you know some some expensive thing at a store, and now my bank account is frozen. So we might not want to, even if the the overall accuracy and the single metric values are pretty good for the model. If we're not looking at that confusion matrix and those curves, we could create churn actually <laughs> in a business. Yeah, true. That that is true. Yeah. And you guys spoke about probability tuning and sort of finding the optimal ratio between true positives, false positives, et cetera. What are some other methods that you guys have seen used in industry to account for specific use cases where 
a specific type of error is a lot more dangerous than another type of error. So, yeah, that is a good question because these are, of course, only numbers. I say, okay, now I get a, a bit better accuracy about what this actually means. And what we have also we've been building as a use case is just to create, create a concrete example what this model performance means. What if I change the classification threshold, what this means to me. And the industry where we were doing this was credit card, no, credit risk assessment. So if a bank extends a credit, what does it mean if the customer can't pay the credit? What does it? What if it doesn't? What does it mean that they don't get the get the money of money of giving giving the credit? So there is then a concrete consequence of false predictions, which is then the money loss, or there is the concrete consequence of correct predictions, which is getting the get, getting the profits of the bank. And we have actually an example on that where we calculate the model model predictions based on the cost and profit in in terms of money in this case so you can you can multiply the confusion matrix by some unit money or whatever is how you measure your model's performance in real real life got it so you shift the classification probability cutoff and see how that affects real life exactly. numbers yeah yep. hi this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level you know whether you're beginner going to intermediate intermediate going to advanced whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance i've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level so if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Awesome. Yeah, I was also just wondering if you guys would also resample your data and look to see if there's specific areas of the data that lead to specific types of classifications. So for instance, if there's data drift in your model or your, if you have very seasonal data and sales go through the roof during Christmas time, do you guys look at data shifts as well as probability cutoff shifts? Actually, yes. So if, if you think about the model scoring in, in where it is now, we, we have been talking about building a model and then evaluating the model and this is the model scoring. But the model scoring also happens elsewhere. So if you bring the model into production, you start predicting, for example, the the credit credit card fraud. Of course, you take a look at in the production as well if if it's if it's working. And here the shift might happen. So I have trained my model this year. Something changes. My customers change their behavior, and the model is not working anymore. So you start monitoring the model's performance in the real world, and there you also quantify it using these scoring metrics. And the other place where you do this, for example, resampling is already in the data pre-processing phase. So going back to the very beginning of this whole cycle and you see, okay, my model has so unbalanced classes that my model algorithm is not going to train well. So I resample the data already there. I, I artificially make the classes balanced so that my algorithm can train better and use this in the production then. Yeah, there's a couple... A couple ways of doing yeah. doing that in particular that we were kind of going down that path with the discussion of like this massive class imbalance where you can use 
you know, upsampling, downsampling, which is destructive. But if you have a homogeny in your ma- in one particular class, you know, we're talking, we keep on talking about fraud modeling, but mm-hmm. m- most customers who are not committing fraud kind of sort of look like each other. They're, they're non-fraudulent. I mean, you look at their purchasing behavior as so long as you stratify them in economic, socioeconomic groups, you can see, okay, it's these type of charge patterns and they're relatively homogenous. When you're just looking at the data, a lot of times it, it can be very obvious that, oh yeah, it's completely fraudulent activity. It should be very simple for the model to extrapolate that, okay, when I, when I have a, a vector that looks like this, this is definitely going to be optimized to, to say this is fraud. And then there's this sort of gray area uh, in between that we're trying to catch that probability cutoff properly by adjusting. And But when we have an extreme class imbalance where the default that a lot of people might think is, well, I'll just throw all the data into the model as much as I can. I'll get a distributed system. Like I need to use Apache Spark for this. And I need to throw all 18 terabytes of my last 20 years of transaction history into this model. It's not any different than subsampling your entire data set while maintaining the same ratios. The key is you need to get more signal of the, the positive extreme minority class in relation to that majority class. And if you have a ton of data, downsampling is good. If you don't have a lot of data, upsampling can be good, which is synthetic replication of it. Or use something like Smote, where that is using some sort of unsupervised learning to autonomously generate synthetic features that look somewhat simple, similar to other data points that you have. When What I really liked in your answer to Michael's question was where you're talking about this process of using these, these values, these calculations, curve generations, confusion matrices, all throughout the process of your modeling, where you're, you're starting out evaluating, is this the right model architecture for me? You're generating these plots. You're generating these this data, on and then you say, "Is my data right? Do I have the right data? Do I have enough of it? What do I have to do with this class imbalance?" You're generating these plots and validating, and then you're tuning, going through hyperparameter tuning. Each one of those, you're generating these plots, looking at them, you release to production. You're generating these plots. When you're getting that true positive, false positive rates for some of these things like fraud and churn prediction. Your predictions are made, but you don't know the truth until maybe a week later, two weeks later. So you're retroactively going back and generating these plots and these, this data. And that's part of that drift monitoring system that will then go and say, okay, the model's falling apart. We need to go and redo some stuff. So let's go back and check our features again and generate these plots and look at this data. It's these are the foundation for classification. And the more that people become familiar with them and understanding how to how to look at them, read them really quickly, and make educated adjustments to their, their projects, the more successful it'll be, I think. Yeah, so it sounds. And actually, when you're talking about the data drift and what you mentioned about it, okay, when you see it's failing, it's actually already too late. So actually... <laughs> Here in the cre- credit card fraud detection, it's collecting the data, getting getting and seeing the chains. It takes a lot of data because it adds up so frequently. And if you see your model failing, it's probably it has been adding up for two weeks already. So there was the chance of not detecting the most obvious fraud for, for two weeks because this type of pattern of fraud is so new. So what you can also do instead of uh, monitoring the Model accuracy statistics is also monitor the features. 
So see, is the data changing? So this allows you to react a bit bit earlier. Yeah, that's that's an interesting, like a very interesting in, industry use case because of all the ML projects I've worked on in my career, anything involving people taking money for free from somebody is one of the most active drift detection or sort of drift susceptible projects that's out there because people are going to steal or they're going to try to steal and they will work very, very hard in trying to figure out how does your company figure out whether this is illegal or not, or it, it violates the terms of service with the, your, your company. And they'll do some interesting things in the case of like online financial tr- fraud transactions with e-commerce. Somebody might do something crazy like, oh, I, if I take this, you know, I steal this credit card, I'm just going to buy 30 PlayStation 5s off of this website and have them shipped to my neighbor's address. And hopefully nobody will find out and I'll, I'll sell them. And that's that's easy to detect. Like, hey, this person has never bought anything like that ever on this credit card. It's pretty easy to just say, okay, we're blocking that. But how do you block something where somebody goes and says, okay, I'm going to buy a thousand things that are all under $10 over a period of a month from different websites around the world and have them shipped to four different addresses that are, you know, within a city block of me. That gets a little bit trickier to figure out. That creativity that these criminals are doing, they're doing it every day. And if you're not checking for that, like deviations, and that's another awesome blog post that you wrote, by the way, is using, you know, statistical process control to detect aberrant outliers that you didn't even think of by monitoring features. That is true. And that is actually all what you said about this creativity of the uh, criminal behavior. That is also a challenge to the, to the classification model approach in, in total. So classification model, it learns by examples. And if we have, for example, customer churn, we have examples of customers who churn and they are like probably pretty similar. So they are maybe not happy with the support. They are they have similar patterns. They are maybe complaining, asking for a discount, or there is some some kind of features that we can say, okay, this anticipates a churn. But a fraud is a bit different because the, all the fraudulent transactions they tend to be very dis- dissimilar. So they try to find new and new patterns because they know we are trying to de- detect them. Versus than the the authorized the normal transactions they are not so dis they are not so dissimilar so there are various patterns you can use credit card everywhere but there are also similarities among them and that's actually what we are trying to also use in this fraud detection case and there the approach would be then to model the normal cases and classify these fraudulent as outliers. So not even trying to put them into the same class, but just separating them from the normal. And that would be then the unsupervised approach, which is then a bit bit outside of the topic of today, which is the classification <laughs> models. Yeah. I just wanted to throw it out there because you yeah. did write a, a bunch of great posts on these topics about, I hesitate to say that they're esoteric because I don't believe they're esoteric. They're absolutely critical concepts for a professional machine learning engineer and data scientist to fully understand these core concepts and ways of looking at problems that are not just what people post the most about. There's a, a lot of lot of things that get posted and written about online that are, it's, it seems like it's always just either deep learning or 
binary classifiers or regression, a lot of XGBoost stuff out there, but it's mostly focused on supervised learning uh, for the vast majority of content that's produced. I think it's because it, that's what people usually learn first, and they they want to post more about that, and they're really proud of, of that, but that's not that's not the vast majority of the tools that are used in real-world data science work. A lot of it is statistical-based processes that you write about in some of your other posts that I think are just fantastic, and I could not recommend them more about if particularly people that are getting into the field to start reading about these these techniques that have been around for a very long time but just aren't talked about that much in a in a modern sense yeah and that's also what where you might might land after making a classification model so if you think okay my model performance is not not satisfactory you have been doing the hyperparameter tuning you are not getting anything better then you might go back to the data pre-processing, you do some kind of resampling, you're still not getting better. So it might be that you go back to the very beginning and to the business question or the algorithm selection and say, okay, I will try with a super unsupervised approach. And then maybe you, you land where you want to get with your accuracy. Yeah, and I also had one question, sort of shifting topics a little bit. Um, you mentioned that you were really excited about collaborating with stakeholders. And it seems like a lot of these classification visualizations can be really effective to see where models are good or bad. And you can use those to communicate with stakeholders. I wonder if, you, if you've if you used them in this style and um, just what are your thoughts around conveying those complex topics to maybe not so technical stakeholders? I... To answer the first question, I haven't been using this outside this educational world. But what I, when I, for example, give presentations about this topic, I really like the questions where it comes to explaining the model. For example, how can we use this in our company if nobody's even understanding what is happening, and we are going to make decisions based on this this model? So this is one thing that also determines the algorithm selection. Not only the accuracy. If I if I can get 90% accuracy and I understand what the model is doing, I might select this one versus a model which gives me 95% accuracy and I have no idea what is happening in the algorithm processing. This is one thing. And then another thing is also, for example, the speed. So if we have millions of rows of credit card data or, or other type of data and it takes me four hours to get the results versus I have a, the same amount of data, a bit simpler model, and I get very fast results. Maybe the use case is very time sensitive. And then it also makes makes a good argument in the algorithm selection. What is the time versus the model accuracy statistics? Yeah, I think you bring up a, a good point that people often forget, which is the most accurate model is technically the best, but it's not always best for the specific use case. Yeah. You have to think about compute time, uh, just cost in general. Um, I remember at a prior job, we were developing some KPI forecasts and the data science team put together some, some not, they weren't amazing, but they, they did the job and they were, they were solid, but they were not very explainable. So the, the chief revenue officer just wouldn't use them and just built an Excel spreadsheet that did year over year differences and use that in all of the decision making. So yeah, explainability and a lot of other factors go into whether a model is actually used. So um, yeah, thank, thank you for elaborating on, on the explainability portion. Yeah. Excel spreadsheet forecasting year over year. It's been a while since I've seen a, a manual or Rima model, but believe it or not, like sometimes they, they work fairly well for a baseline if you're just saying, hey, I just want a ballpark understanding of 
like what's going to happen over the next six quarters. But stuff like Profit, PMD Arima, Stats Models Libraries, they make this stuff relatively easy these days. So it's good to, to learn about that stuff as well. Yeah, agreed. And also the simple models, as we've talked about in prior episodes, simple models tend to be more reliable and tend to produce less crazy results. But yeah, they're, they're, choosing a model is not an easy an easy topic. That is definitely correct. And the baseline should always be there. So the, it's always an effort from, from you, from the computational resources point of view, to build the model. And and if the baseline is doing better, why why do that? And yeah, there are, are cases exactly. where the simple one is is the best one. Most definitely. And to, to go back to our main topic of conversation with this blog, the scariest thing, and to go along with what you just said, Michael, which is about accuracy. If you're doing model selection just based on those raw numbers of saying, okay, my my baseline heuristics approach that we've been using at the company for 10 years, that is basically a, a manual decision tree, is we're 80% accurate. And then somebody goes off and, and uses logistic regression, like just sklearn, very simple implementation. They're like, whoa, it's, it's 84% accurate that's four percent gain it's not even tuned if we tuned it a little bit maybe we can get it up to the 90s and then somebody says well we're going to use a deep learning model here because we think that's going to be that's really popular right now and it seems like that's really going to work and you run it and you get this you know 87 percent accuracy on on the classifier if nobody's generating the plots and charts and the confusion matrix and they're just looking at that one loss metric and they're not thinking about looking at each, what that class imbalance is and, and just optimizing on that error metric. You could be in for a rude awakening when all of a sudden your minor, minority class prediction is zero, but you're 100% perfect with the majority class. And you can't explain the model. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And now that you mentioned the Arima model, for example, also in time series world, there is a lot of discussion about machine learning models versus the classic time series models and the ultimate, there is no ultimate best model, but for example, the ARIMA as a baseline model and also the fact that it gives you some kind of a confidence interval and uh, mm-hmm. it puts on in very explicitly also the uncertainty in the model. So it gives you, it ranges between these and two and this is my prediction, but often with classification models or, or with the uh, machine learning models, it gives you some predictions. It can be very accurate. It can be completely something not not true but it's not not putting giving you this uncertainty in the same way hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after christmas 2020 without the ads signing up will help us pay for editing and production and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium exactly because it's just telling you what it's optimized for based on a vector of information coming in saying, exactly. hey, you told me to build this equation. Here's the answer. Yeah. Whereas Arima, yeah, it's it's like you can get some very interesting forecasts. Like people can do Arima wrong as well. They could just say, I'm just going to train the model and, and then I'm just going to generate 365 days of forecasts in the future. And if your, your trend is additive, and the seasonality component is additive, and you just build a simple Arima with with a fixed differencing term, you can get it to visually look like 
the the historical data pretty you know, fairly easy. I mean, it's it's also easy to make it look like complete nonsense and just wow, it's trending towards infinity or trending towards negative infinity. But without those uncertainty levels, you don't really know if that model is robust, and you can sit there and use back testing. Uh, cross validation you can say i'm pretty certain on this because we've just tested it based on these these time horizon boundaries that we've seen in our actual data we have 10 years of data we're going to test do a boundary test to saying can i predict black friday sales yes or no over the last 10 years and if the model is can do that pretty well you can say okay we got it for this year this is going to be a good model. I would not be able to say the same thing if I see people use like XG Boost for time series now. It seems to be like a big trend that people have now. And I'm like, can you, how certain are you around Black Friday this year that it's going to be good? And then later on, hear back from that same person and like, yeah, we should have listened to you because the model predicted that we were going to have a really good quarter and we really didn't. So we were, we were ten thousand percent off on our predictions. It's like, oh, but did you did you keep the baseline around? Did you keep that Arima model that we built together? They're like, yeah, that was five percent off of reality. I'm like, okay, at least you had the baseline. Yeah, yeah, and that time series. It's it's very tricky because there is often the data collection. It's might not be the easiest. So uh, of course, machine learning models often outperform the simplest model, but they need a lot of data for the training. And if you're talking about the Black Friday sales, if you have it for the past 10 years, then for sure. But uh, often we are modeling things where we just don't don't have enough data. And they're the simple models like Arima also. Just are the choice, regardless what the optimal case and optimal model in the ideal, with the ideal number of data would be. Definitely. All right. So, this was a fascinating conversation. I think we covered a lot of really great topics about, hey, generate your plots, generate your metrics properly, and how to think about particularly the the threshold for classification. I think that's something that I highly recommend listeners go out, look up these blogs and read through them very carefully because uh, there's there's golden nuggets of wisdom in these uh, that Marit has written with her colleagues. I've read through like more than a dozen of them from her company just in the last week and learned some stuff, learned just thought about things in a different way. Like, oh, never really thought about it that way. That's really cool. So definitely give them a read. They're very much worth your time. And uh, for me, and uh, hopefully I speak for Michael as well, thank you so much for coming on today. And and talking through this is there anything that that you'd like to tell anybody like to tell anybody listening in you want to talk about you know how people can get in contact with you if they have questions or just want to connect with you on what you're working on for sure so first of all thank you very much it was a pleasure to be here and i i also enjoyed and this this kind of topics data science from this kind of uh, very very general topics it goes also to very very specific topics we have in our blog post and in our medium journal so nine nine blog and low code for data science medium journal there you will find many many very capable authors writing about data science topics of their their expertise and preference so this is definitely my recommendation and we also give courses so our education team gives courses about data science about our tool uh nine analytics platform so you will find find if you follow the web page nine.com so maybe 
even we see each other later in a course or in a, in a webinar. And just for reference, it is K-N-I-M-E. Correct. Nime. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. Thank you so much. This was a, this was a blast. And any final thoughts, Michael? Uh, no, I, I had a great time um, and really appreciate you coming on and getting so in-depth on classification. I definitely learned some stuff. So really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.